At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51 this morning. Psalm chapter 51 is where we are going to spend our time together. Now, who remembers the, uh, the game called Mercy? Anybody remember that game? Nobody? Somebody? Okay, maybe it was popular in the 90s. Uh, this is when two people would grasp each other's hands with interlocked fingers They'd kind of go like this, and the other opponent would go like this, and one of them or both of them would try to then bend and contort the person's fingers or arms until the other person is in such excruciating pain that they call out what? Mercy. That's how the game is played. It was a classic middle school lunchroom, let's see who's stronger power play, meant to inflict pain on someone without getting in trouble because they willingly participated. I'm sure in this cultural moment, it would never really fly, but that's probably a a good thing. Now, saying mercy means asking the person who has the power to punish you or harm you to show you compassion or forgiveness instead. Go back another generation. Uh, Our family watches this movie every Christmas. It's on our list. It's called A Christmas Story. Remember that one? Uh, There was a bully. His name was Scott Farkas. Remember Scott Farkas, he had like this Daniel Boone hat that he'd wear, and he gets after Ralphie's friend Schwartz, and instead of mercy, they would say, uncle. And so remember the playground scene where he uh, had Schwartz come towards him, and he takes his arm, and he bends it behind his back, and Schwartz yells out, uncle, uncle. Same idea. Sometimes I believe that people, actually many people, seem to believe that they are playing a game of mercy with an unbenevolent bully God. And here's the thinking. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud. Maybe it's just something that happens even subconsciously within us. But, but these, these folks believe that he, God, is the source of their pain and struggle. So here's how the logic goes. If God is real... And if he is the all-powerful creator of all things, then he must be a bully because why else would he allow such awful things to happen in this world? Haven't we all cried out for mercy long enough? There's a lot of variations of this argument. In this narrative, God is both the source of our pain and the source of our relief. The problem with this story is that it refuses to accept that maybe the agony and struggle we all experience is due to our lack of character, not his. But the common 21st century American anthem is to blame shift. It's to deflect so that we don't have to admit that maybe something's broken in us. 
So we're instead taught to say, it's not me, it's them. It's, it's not me, it's what happened to me. It's not me, it was my parents. It's not me, it was my teacher. It's not me, it was my boss. It was the, 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 the machinery of our society and culture. It's, it's all of that that caused me to react the way that I did. But it's not me. Now in contrast, the philosopher J.P. Moreland, he says that in the Christian story, In the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, God isn't the author of evil. Rather, it is his holiness that defines it. Evil is a lack of goodness. It is goodness spoiled. I love that idea. It gives me a good framework to think about evil and God and goodness. It is goodness spoiled, the goodness of God spoiled. And that is where the biblical plot begins that God created out of his love and out of his goodness all that is. We were uniquely designed as eternal image bearers who are given the ability to talk with him and relate with him. And ultimately he invited us to rule and reign with him. But instead of choosing to trust his word that was for our ultimate good, we chose, and to this day we all still choose our own way. And we think our way will bring greater happiness greater satisfaction, greater pleasure. At the heart of these decisions is the idea that we know better than God does. And so we walk away from true goodness. We walk away from his love, away from his holiness, and we walk into darkness. This movement, this movement of walking away from God's goodness, which means we're walking into something spoiled, that is what the Bible calls sin. And the fruit of sin, according to the word of God, is death. Uh, The first fruits of that is physical death. The ultimate fruit of that is eternal death of our soul. So since the near beginning, humanity has been in desperate need of God's mercy. We need his compassion and forgiveness because we have transgressed his divine law. Now, if you are curious about this story or believe this Christian story to be true, then the first question we need to ask is, if the God of scripture is a giver of mercy, how do we receive it? And first we need to ask that portion of the question, is God a giver of mercy? And the answer to that question is found basically in every chapter, in every book from the fall, all the way through the end of scripture. Perhaps one of the most well-known involves the moment when God's people, the Israelites, are brought out of the Egyptian slavery and enter into a binding covenant relationship with God, something that was very common within that time frame. It was, it was a covenantal relationship that was binding, it was legal, and they entered into this relationship at a place called Mount Sinai. And if you remember the story, their leader Moses had ascended the mountain to receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments that communicated the conditions of that relationship. Here's how you're to relate to me. Here's how I'm to relate to you. Here's what you promised to me. Here's what I promise to you. Now, if you know the story, when Moses came down the mountain and he returned to the base camp, what did he find? What did he find happening there? The nation had collected all of their gold. They'd made an Egyptian idol or many idols and they were involved in every sort of debauchery that you could imagine. 
Just in a few simple weeks, they go to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with God. And when Moses comes down with the covenantal stipulations of God, they're already having abandoned all of his word and gone back to the patterns of slavery in Egypt. Now, what does Moses do when he finds all of these people involved in all this debauchery? He takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them down and smashes them to pieces. He destroys the stone tablets that held the commandments. But what does God do? He passes before Moses and he proclaims, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise be to God that that is how he responds to us over and over again. Now later, just as the commandments express the unique relationship between God and Israel, Jesus shares the Beatitudes during his Sermon on the Mount that express the unique relationship and blessing his followers would experience. And he says, Matthew chapter five, verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Or consider the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. The biblical story is that God is the giver of mercy. So if God is the giver of mercy... What you should be asking now is, how do I receive it? How do I receive it? That's a question that King David would have been thinking about after the sickening events of what we explored last week in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. If you were not with us, we are in the second week of a series called Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal. And today we'll be exploring the first two verses of what might be the most well-known chapter on confession found in the Bible. That's Psalm 51 that we heard Brandon read earlier. Remember, King David was the, whom, uh, was the one of whom the Lord said this in Acts chapter 13, 22, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. And David was also the one who wrote Psalm chapter 40, verse eight, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. So David is committed to the word of God. He's committed to the ways of God. He's a man after God's own heart. And yet what we saw last week in 2 Samuel, we found him breaking five of the 10 commandments in one chapter. You shall not covet. You shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not bear false witness or lie. This is why the heading for the psalm reads to the choir master, to the worship leader, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery with her. He abused his power and position as king of Israel and violated Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. David then brings her husband Uriah back from deployment and tells him to clean up, go home, and be with his wife. He refuses. 
So again, David abused his power. He abused his position by ordering that Uriah's fellow soldiers abandon him in the heat of battle, draw back from him his own men so that he would be left on his own and killed. And that's exactly what happened. So then the Lord sends his servant, the prophet Nathan, to David, who had now brought Bathsheba into his harem. And Nathan, the prophet, confronts David's sin. This song was David's response. Do you think after all this, he might have been desperately aware of his need for God's mercy? I mean, could you think of another human being that would be more aware than a man who just stole another man's wife committed adultery with her, then tried to cover it up, then sends the man out and lets him be murdered, and then takes that woman, brings her into his own harem. I mean, this is a devastating story. Is it even possible for someone like him to receive God's mercy? It might surprise you, but it is. It's possible. And maybe that shakes the way you think about God. Maybe you think God can't be right then. He can't be just. He is just, and yet he is love. He does deal with our sin, and yet he does offer mercy. So how do we receive it? First, by appealing to the character of God. Simply two points today. We'll spend the majority of our time on the first. By appealing to the character of God. Look at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David doesn't appeal to anything he had ever done to serve the Lord. He had a long list. Think about the man's life if you're familiar with his story. He doesn't talk about his faith as a child or as a teenager. He doesn't talk about his commitment as a shepherd. He doesn't talk about his humility that he demonstrated there. He doesn't talk about his victory over Goliath. Uh, The mercy he showed King Saul when he had the opportunity to kill the king who was trying to kill him. The passion of his worship that embarrassed his wife. The countless times he put his life on the line for the sake of God's people and the renown of God's name. He doesn't bring any of that faithfulness up. He doesn't bring up one story. He doesn't go back and say, but, but I did this and I, I did that and yeah, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, I, but do you remember when I did this and when I served you that way? He goes back to no list. He knows none of that changes the balance. He had despised the word of God and counted God's wisdom as worthless. He had broken his covenant with the Lord, with his wife, and to his nation. Nothing could remotely justify anything he had done. So he appeals not to his own fickle and failed character, but to the character of God. Confession, which is ultimately what we're talking about, something that maybe we don't practice that often as believers in this Protestant movement of the church, this expression of the church. This is something that, you know, maybe you don't want to hear much about it. We got five weeks on it and you're like, man, this is week two. We got three more weeks to think about our sin. Yes. Because the more we consider our sin, the greater our God becomes. It's good for our souls. It's good for our hearts. We need these reminders. Confession begins with a proper understanding of who God is. 
and who we are in light of who he is. So David says, have mercy, O God. Why? Because of your steadfast love, because of your immeasurable mercy, because of who you are, not because of who I am. The word for steadfast love is a Hebrew word called hesed. Turn to your neighbor this morning and say hesed. Not he said, but hesed. Hesed. It's a hard word to translate because it combines multiple ideas. It combines the ideas of love, generosity, personal care, and enduring commitment. All of those things wrapped up into one word. So I'll give you an example from scripture to illustrate. Uh, Remember the story of Ruth. Ruth's uh, husband, or of Ruth herself, her husband dies along with his brother and his father. And this is an Old Testament character. And these were the men, her husband, her husband's brother, and her husband's father who were meant to care for her in case her husband passed away. They were the ones who were charged with her care. So all she is left with is her mother-in-law, Naomi. And in that culture, the way it worked is if you did not have that care through some kind of patriarch within the family, uh, then oftentimes you would become impoverished and be a beggar. So Naomi begs her, uh, her mother-in-law begs her to go back to her family and receive what she needs from them. There's nothing for you here. There's, There's nothing we can offer you. So start over, leave this chapter of sorrow behind you. But Ruth says, Uh, that she's going to stay and care for Naomi, even though Naomi has nothing to offer her. So as people watch Ruth carry out her promise over time, they call that type of love from Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi, has said, steadfast love. This type of love doesn't depend on the faithfulness of the person receiving it. It is completely based on the character of the person giving it. It's just a part of who Ruth was. It's not something given when one person keeps their end of the deal. It's given freely because it is connected to the faithfulness of the promise keeper. It's that type of loyal love that is promised through wedding vows. It's the type of love that God has for his own people. Think about when the Israelites were on their way to the promised land after fleeing Egypt. They and They had sent the spies into Canaan who had come back with an incredible report about the land itself, but a terrible report about the people who lived there. And they said, yeah, it's beautiful and it's wonderful, but we can never go in and conquer that land. There's giants that are there. We're going to be smashed to pieces if we try to go into this country and overwhelm them. So God, yeah, he promised us the land, but we can't do it. And as a result, the people rebel against their leader, Moses, and they attempt to stone Moses until the Lord steps in. So then Moses pleads with God to forgive the people for their lack of faith and rebellion. He prays in Numbers chapter 14, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, has said, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In other words, don't forgive them because they deserve it. Forgive them because it is consistent with who you are. 
Psalm 136 begins by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love has said endures forever. And then the song repeats that phrase, his has said is forever, his steadfast love is forever. That psalm repeats that phrase 26 times. Says it over and over and over. So if you get frustrated with those worship songs that repeat a refrain, the congregation sang this one and sang it 26 times to remind themselves of who God is. So next, David appeals to God's abundant mercy. Abundant mercy could also be translated the greatness of your compassion. God's mercy is immeasurable. I love how it is described in a a song we sang in the uh, later services last week. There's a song called His Mercy is More. In the first verse, it reads this, what love could remember no wrongs we have done omniscient, that means all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. This is how the psalmist describes the Lord's abundant mercy in Psalm 103, which is also written by David. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we just read in Exodus 34. It's the same refrain over and over and over throughout scripture. In verse nine, it says, he will not chide away, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise be to God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his hased, his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What sin is greater than the Lord's mercy? I want you to consider that this morning. What failure is bigger than he is? My friends, God is the greatest being we could ever fathom. Do you truly believe that your sin is more powerful than his promise? So if your sin is not more powerful than his promise, that means that he can and will forgive you as you respond to him in confession. And if he can and will forgive you, why will you not forgive yourself? I had a family member who refused to be baptized for 35 years. Why? Because she was overwhelmed with this concept that she wasn't clean enough to come to God. There's just too much in my life that's not consistent with what he expects and and the guilt and the shame literally just caused her to not be willing to take steps of obedience towards Jesus, not because he wasn't willing to come towards her, but because she wasn't willing to step towards his said, his steadfast love. The truth is, I think many in this room this morning are enslaved to the guilt of your own sin, not thinking that God can or will forgive you. And I'm here to tell you he will based on his character, not yours. If you're willing to humble yourself and confess. Yes, God does judge those who refuse his medicine. Jesus said as much in Luke chapter five, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, he said, but those who are sick, 
I've not come to call the righteous. I've not come to call those who think they have it all figured out. I'm not called to call, the, uh, to, to call those who think that they're beyond the issue of sin within their life. They've been following him for a long period of time, so therefore they have no need of the physician anymore. We constantly need the physician. He says he calls sinners to repentance. Are we so arrogant to think that our transgressions are beyond the ability of God to blot out? That our sin is unlike anything he's ever seen in the history of humanity. (laughs) He has seen it all. Let's be honest, by recognizing we all come to the giver of mercy in one of two ways. You either come to him thinking you have no need of it, or you come to him thinking that he is your desperate savior. That you are in desperate need of his mercy. Which one are you? How do we receive God's mercy? By appealing to the character of God and secondly, by appealing to the cleansing power of God. Look at verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is pleading with God, have mercy, blot out, make clean. What does he need cleansing from? He uses three words to describe his sin in the text. In these first two verses, three words. My transgression My transgression, transgression means to go against or to rebel. My iniquity, iniquity means to bend or to twist, to take the law of God and twist it, to bend it. And three, my sin, which means to miss the mark or a goal. He's using every expression he can think of to describe the inexcusable nature of his immorality. He knows he is defiled. He knows he is stained. He knows because of what he has done, he is marked for death. So he uses the picture of ceremonial cleansing as a way of saying, God, take away what is filthy and make it pure and ready for worship. David acknowledges that he is not prepared to have any contact with a perfectly holy God and a righteous God. He knows that his soul needs more than a ritual bath to remove all of the filth. He recognizes that stain, stick, and bleach, that's not gonna do the trick. That's not gonna get it out. Now, maybe when you think about your own transgression, your own iniquity, your own sin, using those words of David, maybe you think, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I've done a lot of stuff, but I haven't done those things. That's the deception so many fall into. It's just those small little sins done over and over. Maybe it's pride, arrogance, impatience, lusts of the flesh, lusts of the eyes. All those things that maybe even just happen within your own heart that no one ever sees. Are those any less offensive ultimately when you stack them up against a holy and righteous God, we all fall short according to the word of God. So he recognizes that he is powerless to rid himself of the stench of his sin. And he's like a blind man who's powerless to restore his own eyesight. And it's like when Jesus was leaving Jericho in Mark chapter 10 with his disciples, there was a blind beggar along the road. And according to one gospel, there were two blind beggars, but the one is given a name in the gospel of Mark. His name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And Bartimaeus is blind. And this is what happens in Mark chapter 10, verse 47. When he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was walking down the road, he began to cry out and say, Jesus 
son of David, have mercy on me. Isn't it interesting that he calls him son of David? Like, it's, after you've heard the story of 2 Samuel chapter 11, do you want to be associated as a son of David? Like, is that what you want your family legacy to be? And yet over time, we know that that's not the legacy that David ultimately left. The son of David was a Jewish title associated with a coming savior. And Bartimaeus calls out to the Messiah, this savior, begging for mercy. Isn't it amazing that God can even take someone like David and allow his lineage to ultimately produce the very son of God who brought the mercy that David needed? So he calls him son of David, have mercy on me, show me compassion, do for me what I cannot do for myself. Verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. They said, shut up, we're trying to listen, we're trying to talk to him, you're overwhelming us. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. When you know there is something in you that you can't fix, when you finally come to that place and realize that you can't put it back together, that you can't clean yourself up, that, then you will do whatever it takes. You won't be worried about how you look or how you sound or what people think or what they'll think if you raise a hand or lift your voice or bow a knee. You don't think about those things because you will just run to the one with the power to help you. And that's what he does. And Jesus stopped and said to Bartimaeus, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same question he offers all of us. And the blind man said to him, rabbi, teacher, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The promise of the gospel is that if you come to Jesus in faith, he will heal you. And perhaps that's a healing you've already experienced. We're talking about spiritual healing in this sense. Of course, it extends on rare occasion to physical healing in this life, but ultimately it's the physical healing we'll experience through the resurrection. And this is what we receive for our faith. Romans chapter 10, verse nine, very famous passage, reminds us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord meaning savior of the world who willingly died on the cross so that your sin might be cleansed. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that his resurrection demonstrates his power over sin and death, then Romans tells us then you will be saved. But to receive God's mercy, you have to recognize that your sin has left a stain. Jesus' sacrificial blood was the revelation of God's cleansing power. Listen to the Apostle John, how he describes this good news. Very wonderful text that we have in 1 John 1 verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That is our culture, friends, right there, called out in the word of God in one sentence. 
But conditional, verse nine, if we confess our sins, if we confess, then God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the giver of mercy. How do we receive it? Appeal to his character. Appeal to his cleansing power. Whether the spirit is bringing an elephant out of your attic or an ant, it doesn't matter. God has what your soul needs if only you would confess. So maybe you're staying this morning, maybe it's a hard heart or an unforgiving spirit or a root of bitterness, envy, or jealousy, or a secret lust, or an idolatry, or a pattern of greed, or apathy, passiveness about the gospel, anger, selfishness, jealousy, a lack of passion for what matters to God, whatever it might be, confess it. Because when we do, we unleash his healing power into our lives. That is how renewal begins. I came across a prayer of confession the other day, and this is where we'll close this morning. And I'm gonna invite us all to read it together if you choose. And you might think, but, but I don't connect with everything in the prayer of confession. That doesn't describe my whole life. That, those are things that I haven't done. Don't you find it interesting that in Psalm 51, David wrote it about his sin with Bathsheba, but he wrote it as a song for the entire nation to sing together? Why? Because all of us can connect with this idea of needing repentance, of needing forgiveness, of needing God's immeasurable mercy. And so we confess as a community, not just individuals, but as a community before our God because that's the pattern we find in scripture. Not something we practice all that often. But I came across this confession the other day and I think if we are going to be a people of clean hands and a pure heart, we should practice confession together. That's how a movement of renewal starts. So maybe the spirit of God is impressing upon your heart to pray this with me. If he is, you can read it along with me this morning. Here it is. You asked me for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them for the work was hard. You asked me for my mouth to speak out against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them for I did not want to see. You asked for my life that you might work through me. I gave a small part that I might not get it, get too involved. Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you only when it is convenient for me to do so, only when those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me, renew me, and send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. So Father, we make this confession as a people before you. Father, even today, even in these moments, I pray that my brothers and sisters would lay all of their 
transgression, iniquity, sin, rebellion, whatever word comes to their minds, that they lay it at your feet, realizing that they can leave this place this morning lighter, ridding themselves of a weight that they can never carry because ultimately Jesus has taken it for us on his cross. So in faith, Father, we repent of our sin. We receive your mercy so that we might leave this place filled with joy, filled with gratitude, with a life full of grace, ready to extend your mercy to others because of all that you have done. I pray that you would renew our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that you would renew relationships today by people asking forgiveness of one another, that you would renew relationships with you today as people who felt like they could never draw near again, draw near to you through prayer and confession. Father, be with your people and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.